0: You're the reading of the word from the Revelation to John chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for waking us up this morning. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into worship today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what this day is means for us, Lord, as your followers and as your church. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would honor our worship today, Lord, honor our time as we hear your word taught and proclaimed. Lord, we pray that you would be honored by our worship as we come to the table. And so, Lord, we pray this day that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand and believe what you have inspired in your word. And we pray these things in the name of the risen and ascended Christ. Amen. Well, as many of you as are aware, and not just because Chris has said it, but probably also because I just said it, and also it's the, on the front of the bulletin, uh, today is Ascension Sunday, right? So, so this is the day that we celebrate as the church the Ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven, and we usually reserve this for Sundays because the Ascension Sunday, our Ascension day was on Thursday, so we usually just tack it on in uh, on Sunday, but... There are obviously there are specific readings for this service that we're very familiar with, right? Uh, like the one that David just read uh, and ones that really in a lot of ways we've come to expect, right? And, and, and that's what I love really about the liturgy and the lectionary, right? This is there's beauty in our regular routines that remind us of who we are as the church, right? That's why we have a liturgy. That's why we follow the seasons of the year. But as you can tell by the passage that I read, this, that's not an Ascension Sunday text, um, I was pondering over the lectionary this week and realized that we had spent, other than Easter Sunday, where we were in 1 Corinthians, we spent the entirety of, of the season of Easter in the book of Revelation. And so I just really kind of felt led, you know, maybe we ought to just end the season of Easter there, because next Sunday's Pentecost. Uh, and then we're in ordinary time. So, I mean, we're, we're here, right? It's the end of May. So, so I thought, you know, uh, what we did is on Easter Sunday, we began the season by considering really the truths, not only of, The resurrection of Christ, but the effects that the resurrection of Christ has on his people, right? The fact that not only does his death and resurrection save us, but because he has been raised bodily, we can be promised that we also will be raised bodily. So in the same way, then, I thought it might actually be beneficial to us to end the season of Easter by considering how the truths and the effects of the ascension of Christ back into heaven How that really affects us as his believers, as his followers, as his church. And this is not to say that we're only benefited by these eternal truths solely in how they relate to us. But rather, understanding what the ascension of Christ means really allows us to better understand the plans that the Lord God has laid out as part of redemptive history. As well as when we come to worship him. And so, because you see, for our text this morning, it relates to the ascension of the Lord Jesus... By way of what his ascension promises, and David read this from the beginning of Acts, it promises his second advent, but it also promises the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which we will celebrate next week. But think about think about our text from Revelation in this way. We usually really begin. We always begin the celebratory season in the beginning of Advent by reflecting on the second advent of Christ. And so now, with the ascension of the Son back to the Father, the question that usually always comes to my mind is, well, what do we do now, right? What's next? Christ has gone back into heaven, now what? Well, the answer to that is always, well, now we, we just wait. Right? We wait. We wait on him to return, and as, as he re- says here in verse 12, we wait on him to return and to bring his recompense with him. And so the celebration of the ascension of the Lord Jesus naturally and kind of inevitably turns into a celebration of the long-awaited second advent of the Lord Jesus. So with his ascension, we kind of enter into a new season, not only in the liturgical year, but as the entire church, we enter into a season of waiting. And we've been waiting for a while. And so in the midst of our almost 2,000-year period of waiting, we come to this promise of verse 12, where Jesus just says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, and to repay everyone for what he has done. So this is a promise that Jesus will actually repeat down in verse 20, and it's it's a theme that John really has touched on throughout the entire book, because Christians of every generation have rightly, from the apostles until now, believed that the Lord would return in their lifetimes. I mean, this is something, this is really the whole point behind Jesus's reminder to us to stay awake and to be watchful, because the ascension of the Lord really provokes in us an, an eschatological and in times urgency, right? It's His return is inevitable. His return is soon. And so we don't know when the master will return. Jesus even reminds the apostles of this and what David read, right? It's not for us to know the seasons and the times, but to be watchful and to stay awake. And but while there are a few similarities between verses 12 and 20, we'll get down to 20 in a minute, but I do want to draw our attention to what Jesus states within this first verse about what he will bring with him when he returns. And notice that what he says here. In that second part of the verse is actually it's what's contained within it is a promise, but also a warning. He says, I am coming soon and I'm coming to bring my recompense with me and I'm coming to repay everyone for what he has done. So to better understand this promise. Really, I I had to spend a moment in the Greek because the word recompense is not something in English that I think we use very often. Right. Most of our translations probably read recompense. But this is one of those days where I just, I, I'm not really a good cheerleader of the ESV. Not that I would be a good cheerleader for much, right? I mean, I, I don't have the upper body strength to hold somebody up, and I don't look good in a skirt. So, you know, I'm not a good cheerleader. But, but the ESV, I just, while the translation is accurate, I don't think it's very helpful. And that, that can happen with English translations, just to be honest. The word recompense in the Greek is this word mistos or mistos, depending on how you want to pronounce that I in there. Which, if you're looking at another translation, some of you I know have in the room, it might have been rendered as the word reward, which actually flows a little easier with the rest of the verse, right? Another possible translation for this word is the word wage, like wages or payment. So think like a paycheck, really, if you want to get a little bit more capitalist with it, right? And so in the promise of his return, the Lord is actually also promising us the reward that we have been guaranteed by our faith and trust in him. We've been promised, as we saw on Easter Sunday, a bodily resurrection and glorified bodies. We've been promised by our faith in Christ the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been promised eternal rest in the presence of God. You know, those aren't little things. We've been promised some big things. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his message paraphrase. He wrote it this way. Verse 12 reads, yes, I am on my way and I'm bringing my payroll with me. So think of it this way. When Christ ascended and took up his throne, he not only went to prepare a place for us. But he also went to prepare our wages. In the second advent, what he does is he returns not only to gather us, but he returns with his payment in hand. But there's also a warning that's contained within this verse. It's the second part of—actually, it's the third part of the verse, right? The verse is really broken up into three parts. We see, bringing my recompense, my wages with me. But he also says that he is going to be returning to repay everyone for what he has done. Again, I I like what Eugene Peterson does in his paraphrase here. He writes, I'll pay all people in full for their life's work. Now, we rightly celebrate and anticipate the second advent of Christ— But we we really need to be aware of the warning behind the promise of his return. Because other translations actually read, and yours might read this way, Christ says, I'm not only going to return with my payment with me, but to reward each one as his work deserves. So just considering even, honestly, recent news over the last couple of weeks, this warning should come for us as believers as a firm reminder of the kind of work that believers have been called to do and what we affirm and proclaim about the Lord Jesus. He's going to come back and to pay us according to the work that we have done. A great illustration of this is the parable of the tenants, I think, that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25, where when he returns, he returns very much like the manager in that that parable that he teaches. So he comes back like a manager to pay us our wages, which we're more than happy to take, right? We, we want our repayment. But he's also coming to inspect our work, which if you've ever had any kind of normal job where you end up with an inspection, you hate inspections, right? Whether that be in food service or anything else. So we don't like that. But listen to, listen to the, how this works out in the parable of the tenants. And most of us know this parable, right? A manager leaves his property. He gives one servant five talents. He gives another one um, Two talents and then one one right? The one with five, he goes out and he trades and he makes five more, right? He doubles it. Same with the one that, gives, that he gives the two. He doubles it. But the one that he gives the one to has a panic attack, essentially, and he goes and he hides it and he buries it in the ground. And so the manager returns. And we read here, the one with five talents doubles it, and the, and the master responds, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He says the same thing with the one that had two talents that doubled it. But then he says this to the one who only gave one. He only gave to one. He said, uh, the, the, the servant says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. So here, take what is yours. So now, you know, prudently, right? That sounds like a prudent thing, right? This guy's a harsh manager. I don't want to lose what he gave me, so I'm going to go hide it, and I'll give it back to him. And he can't be too upset. Well, obviously he's wrong, right? The master responds and says, You are a wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I could have at least received my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has more will be given... And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast this wicked servant into the outer darkness. So notice then coming back to verse 12 in our text for today, that this payment when Christ returns, it's not for those that are not already part of the kingdom. It's not for those who are not servants. In verse 15, which isn't in our text for today, we actually read Jesus he tells his hearers that those who are outside, they'll, they'll receive their own payment. But one church father reminds us in this moment, he says, penance is worthless at this, po- at this moment. He says, it's recognized that at this point. If you have not already repented and believed, then there is no forgiveness of sins by this point. He says, there will no longer be a conversion for the wicked. And penance of such people will be endless as well as useless. And so this promise... And this warning of verse 12 is for those who are already in the kingdom. And take note, also, this is not earning salvation, right? A lot of You might start getting a little nervous and thinking, oh, well, this means we have to work toward our salvation. I think what this is, there's only a repayment for the work that Christ has already entrusted to those who have believed and put faith in him. So in this promise and warning of his return, may we be found to be faithful over little instead of slothful and wicked. And so... Moving in then to verse 13, just in case any of us, and looking around the room, I don't think that would be the case. But just in case any of us were tempted to go, well, who is Jesus to say he can come back and pay me back and and judge my work? Well, he gives us his authority in verse 13, and he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So what Jesus does then is he takes us really all the way back to chapter 1 of Revelation where we began this look in the book of Revelation. To the very place where the Lord God, where Yahweh God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. But the difference now at the end of Revelation is that it is Christ who is explicitly claiming the authority of Yahweh. And here we have to remember John's not writing Revelation in a vacuum. right? He's, he's not seeing these visions of the new heavens and the new earth or the new Jerusalem or even this worship of the heavenly throne room. He's not seeing them in a vacuum. He's seeing them as something connected to everything else that the Lord God has revealed about himself throughout time and throughout all of Scripture. So here what Christ is doing is he's, he's rightly and justly claiming the authority of Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord God comes, Yahweh God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. And behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense, his payment, is before him. So it's this claim to authority that reminds us as readers of the apocalypse of John here that the Lord Jesus is not only worthy to be worshipped as Yahweh, but he also has the full authority and majesty of Yahweh. He is the beginning and the end. Christ is just as Yahweh is. And all of these titles that that he proclaims of himself here in verse 13 represent his eternal being and his divine and sovereign direction over history. Including his authority to come and to judge the earth. Including his authority to bring us our repayment for what he has left us to do. But also to inspect the work that he has left for us to do. And if we're being honest with one another, like if you're just thinking about it just at the base level, that's kind of a terrifying thought, right? Even though as believers in Christ, it's a hopeful one, it's, it's still, it doesn't make it any less terrifying. But as we move into verse 14... Jesus gives us the details of the repayment that he's bringing with him, of the reward. He says this, Blessed are those who, wa- who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So this idea of washing the robes sounds very familiar to something we've already seen, again, in Revelation. Right In 7.14, we read this, Those who have washed their robes, are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. These are all of those who have endured, we saw when we looked at that, at, at, they've endured during the time between the Advents. This includes you and me. So, as we read here, our reward in verse 14, our reward is twofold. We get the right, if we've washed our robes, we have the right to the tree of life and we have the right to enter the city by the gates. And here's where we note that Jesus' repayment, his recompense, and his reward, and and his inspection are for those who actually do belong to him. Because we notice that these images that he gives us, these words, they have the right to the tree of life. This This is another reminder of the reversal and the redemption of the fall. right? As well as the redemption and reversal of our headship in Adam. Now we are under the headship of Christ. We looked at this on Easter Sunday. Because... The tree of life was withheld from Adam and Eve when they were tempted and fell into sin. But now, those who have washed their robes and have made them white in Christ's blood, those who have come out of the great tribulation between the advents, the Lord Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who has the authority to do this, he gives us the right. He gives us the authority to approach the tree of life, but also to partake it. But he's also given us the right and his authority to enter the city by the gates which displays for us our right to enter the new Jerusalem, to enter the city of God. Only those with the authority of Christ may enter by the gates. Everyone else attempts, and they fail at the attempt as we read in chapter 21, but they attempt to enter by false ways. They attempt to climb the walls, which if you've looked at even just the measurements of the walls of the new city of Jerusalem, that's impossible to do. Only those who have been given the right may enter the city. But everyone else are left outside and cast into the outer darkness. So that's the promise of our reward and our repayment when Christ returns. But again, with the ascension of the Lord back to the Father, the church is now in this new season of waiting. And we could talk all day long about the rewards we're going to get when Christ comes back. But again, what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, the rest of our text this morning, I think, helps us to answer that question. Because as weird as it is to say, Jesus left so that he could come back, right? You could, you could easily just say, well, he didn't have to leave at all, but he did because of the promise of the Holy Spirit, which, again, we will look at next week. But starting in verse 16, we see that the Lord, he actually explicitly identifies himself here as the one who has sent this message to the churches. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, John, to testify to you, church, about these things for the churches. I, Jesus, I am the root And the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And like in verse 14, verse 16, what it does is it actually continues to add weight and authority behind the promise and the reward that the Lord will bring when he returns. But it also adds his weight and authority to everything that has been seen by John throughout this entire letter, everything that has been spoken to John about, everything that has been warned by Christ through this letter, and everything that's been promised by Christ throughout this whole letter. But furthermore, what this does is it actually adds weight and authority to the actual promise of his return. And we can see this simply by the identification markers that he uses of himself here. He says first, he calls himself the root and the descendant of David. Now, he's claiming the Davidic kingship that God promises all the way back in the Old Testament. But, but what Jesus is doing is, again, calling our attention back to Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.10, we read, In that day, the root of Jesse... "...who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." And by calling himself the bright and morning star, he's actually calling our attention to Balaam in the book of Numbers. In Balaam's final oracle in Numbers 24, Balaam says this, "...a star will rise out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel." And what this tells us is that if we can have assurances that the promise of the Messiah was fulfilled in the person of Christ, then the promise of his return can also be assured. And this promise of his return, it's it's a comfort as we wait. But it also gives us a guarantee that he will come back. But in the meantime, as we wait, it also lends his authority through the power of the Spirit that's been poured out to do the work and the commission that he's given us to do. As we wait and as we pray for his return. And as we pray for his wages. And as we pray for his inspection of our work. But then we come to verse 17. And we actually end up with an interruption to Jesus almost. It's, it's like it's like the church and the Spirit just couldn't stop anymore. They had to say something, right? So they actually interrupt the Lord Jesus as he's proclaiming these things. And, and the Holy Spirit and the entire church... Say this the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires to take the water of life without price I think if you were to try to pinpoint a key word in this in this verse it's probably going to be the word come right i mean it's 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 there three times but i also think it's implied there at the end of the verse right let the one uh, who who desires to take the water of life without price let them come but, but this is one of those verses where I think if you were to start asking people their interpretation of it, you're going to get answers from all over the board. Right? One guy I read actually suggested he said he thought that the intended audience for all of, the, for all of these commands to come was specifically for humanity, and that was it. Now, I'm going to stress in bold italics the word ish here. I agree with him ish. right? I agree with him ish as it relates – to the promise of Jesus returning and bringing with him our repayment and the inspection of our work. Because part of our work is calling people to come to Christ. But in light of the promise and assurances of his return, I think this verse is best understood as the entire church praying through the power of the Spirit, the prayer that John will repeat down at the end of verse 20, come Lord Jesus. I think this entire prayer is directed specifically at the Lord Jesus. One church father agrees with this. He says that verse 17 is our prayer for the second advent. And he says, we are instructed to seek the second coming of the Lord, and we are indeed to pray for it. And to be sure, whenever we pray, thy kingdom come to God, we're seeking the kingdom of Christ, which is also the kingdom of the Father and of the Spirit. Our Eastern Orthodox friends are really helpful here. I love what what they say about this verse they see this verse as a liturgical dialogue between heaven and earth and between the Spirit and the church. But they also see it as a reflection of the theology of the Eucharist. Because when we come to the table and we give thanks for what Christ has done and we remember his death and resurrection, when we remember his ascension and the promise of his return and the promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, what we do is we enter into this heavenly liturgical dialogue with the whole church as we pray, Lord Jesus, please come. And so when the Lord ascended and took up his throne at the right hand of the Father, the church was thrown into this long season of waiting. And now, like the woman at the well, we are all longing for the water that only Christ can give. And really, like the prophets of the old covenant, who looked forward and prophesied about the first advent, when the church enters into this prayer, we begin to prophesy in our regular prayers about the second advent that's coming. And so, as if in answering the church and her prayers, Jesus responds in verse 20. And he just says this, he who testifies to these things, who is Jesus? He's already identified himself. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. To which John just can't help but respond with amen, come Lord Jesus. Again, we, we saw this promise of his return in verse 12. But, but take note of two particular words that Jesus uses in this second promise. He uses one of them back in verse 12. But he uses this first one is this word, surely. Which, with the way languages change over time. And we've even seen words change meaning really in the last 20 years, right? So the way languages change over time in English, at least to my own ear... The word surely doesn't come with a whole lot of certainty to the way I hear it in my brain, right? It really, the word surely in my mind, thinks, I just think it's kind of uncertain, right? So think about it this way you're waiting on somebody to come and meet you for lunch, right? Well, surely they're going to come, right? I mean, you, or anybody that's ever flown, surely that plane will wait on me before it takes off. It ain't going to do that, right? <laughs> or surely that mean dog next door won't bite me if I pester it to death, right? No, it's probably going to bite you. There's a question of actuality behind this word and the way we understand it, especially in our modern vernacular. But in the Greek, there's two different words that are used here that can be used for this word. One of them is the word certainly, which obviously is less uncertain because it's certain, right? But the better way, I think, to translate this word is simply the word yes. Because this is the exact same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 1.20, when he tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And so Jesus responds to the prayer of his bride from verse 17 with an emphatic yes in verse 20. The bride, through the Spirit, pleads with the bridegroom, Lord, please come, to which he responds, yes, I am coming. But the other word he uses here is the word soon, he used it up in verse 12 too, but here he uses it again. And like surely, soon, at least in the way I hear it, has a bit of uncertainty to it. And part of the problem with that is that I'm from the south, right? And the word soon as a marker of time can mean anywhere between five minutes to a couple of hours, right? So just to give you an example, and if my dad listens to this, this is not an insult toward my dad. But when I was a kid, my dad would wake me up for school, and he would always do it in a very annoying way, right? He'd come and shake my leg really hard and say, Nick, you've got to get up. The bus will be here soon. My, the bus, my school bus, I got on the school bus at 7.15. He would wake me up at 6 in the morning. 7.15 and 6 a.m. are a long way apart for a 10-year-old, right? I mean, you just, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't need that long to get ready as a 10-year-old. I ate breakfast at school, so, you know, it's not like I even had to eat breakfast, right? So, so soon is, is an interesting word. But again, the the Greek is more direct, I think, here. Because there's a word, this word can be also translated as the word quickly. Which is why we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But the word quickly rings with a lot more certainty and finality to us. But at the same time, we also wouldn't call 2,000 years quickly, right? But we've got to remember, when we think about 2,000 years, we've got to think about Peter's exhortation to us in 2 Peter 3, where he reminds us that... With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But God is not slow to fulfill, fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will, yes, certainly come, and it will come quickly. So the promise of the Lord Jesus here is firm. Yes, he is certainly coming, and he is coming very soon. He's coming quickly. And so, like I mentioned earlier, there's this eschatological urgency to this promise from the Lord Jesus Because even in the midst of celebrating his ascension and celebrating his coronation and his enthronement, celebrating Pentecost, the bride and the Spirit not only plead with him to come, but to come quickly. And at the same time, the bride and the Spirit also plead with those who hear the message of Christ. We plead with them to come. We plead with those who are thirsty to come to Christ. We plead with those who desire eternal life and to drink the water of life that is priceless to come to Christ. And so this end times urgency in this promise of the return of Christ is very simple. And it's this, it's it's that the end is near. Now we've been waiting 2,000 years for it, but the end is near. And so Christ is just, other than sitting and praying for us constantly, he's waiting on the Father to tell him, go, go and get your bride. And so the time to come and to drink the water without price is now. And this is what he is telling us, this is taken up in that promise and in that warning. He tells us the time to come and drink of the Eucharist is now. But in the meantime, we wait. And we wait and we pray, please, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. And as John ends here, the grace and the Lord Jesus be with you all.